Um, you might not know, but I'm, I'm a teacher, I'm a science teacher, and um, this, this week in the school where I work, the, the boys were back from the Easter holidays, and uh, the noise of children happily seeing their friends again since a long time, um, you could hear it down the corridors. And, and picture the scene as I uh, settle into the first lesson of the term, um, get my class into the science lab, uh, they're in a new seating plan, they're sat down, waiting, silently. My, my instruction, attentive to every word. And I start to explain this bit about filtering out sand from water. There's some keywords, residue and filtrate. And um, as soon as I say the, the word, they put down their pens and uh, they're ready, ready for my next instruction. I, I wish. Oh, man. I, I wish it were really like that. I wish that, that was uh, my experience. Sadly, this sort of behaviour and, uh, and response to the instructions I've given takes place only in my imagination. And the reality of trying to get a semblance of control, let alone learning, um, in my classroom does take significantly more effort, um, maybe than I'd like to admit. Um, this afternoon, we're, we're looking at a picture of authority. Um, but this time, it's not just a, a classroom dream, it's, it's a reality. And so we also have to think about how do, how do we respond to that? And so we're going to look at faith and how um, there's faith in action and then how faith really makes the difference. At this point in the story in Matthew's Gospel, the crowd watching Jesus uh, have just seen him touch and heal a leper, and so they're probably reeling a little bit, maybe shocked at, at what's happened. And, and here comes another encounter that they would have never expected. As the centurion approaches, you can almost imagine the crowd shrinking back. He's a Roman soldier stationed in the area to enforce Roman rule over the Jewish people. It's very much the embodiment of the oppression. And here he is approaching a Jewish leader. In that situation, I wonder what they expected to happen. Maybe an arrest, a confrontation or worse. But instead the centurion pleads with Jesus, asks for his help. And I think quite notably, not just for himself, but for his servant. In Roman society, the centurions would have not, not maybe given a second thought about their servants. They could easily get another one. And after all, to reach the level of command, they would have had to fight hard, ruthlessly even, to demonstrate their worth to the empire and their suitability to lead others within a brutal regime. This context means that an act of selflessness stands out even more. When Jesus responds by asking if he should come and heal him, we expect this encounter to follow a familiar pattern of many others where Jesus has come to their house, he's sat with them, eaten with them, and he speaks to them and he heals the sick. Surely this centurion, he's heard of Jesus enough to want to see him. He must know how Jesus works, how, how, what his modus operandi is. But here we are surprised again. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. A centurion, a commander in the Roman army, he could have demanded that Jesus came to see him. But this is a man who knows where he stands before the living God. And he recognises two important things. Firstly, who Jesus is. And secondly, that he himself is not worthy of even having him to visit. To the watching crowd, this may have seemed completely backward. 
the centurion's house would have been more lavish than any of the homes that Jesus would have visited already or would go on to visit. They may have even expected Jesus himself to be a little bit nervous under the eye of the Roman authority. But a centurion recognises Jesus' authority and humbly submits. I wonder if you've ever had unexpected guests. Maybe not so over the last 12 months or so, but uh, there can be that panic, can't there? Thinking, oh, I haven't done the washing out. There's all this pile of dirty washing. I haven't taken the bins out. The guests, they might see. What will they see? Well, they'll, they'll see the real you, won't they? They'll see the real lived-in house. And I think that's it. The centurion knows himself, doesn't he? He knows the real self beneath the uniform and the armour. He knows that compared to Jesus, he's not worthy. He also knows that in his life, he has turned away from God. I wonder, can we recognise this attitude in ourselves? There's a tension to be held, isn't there? We do have access through Easter to, to God, uh, the temple, temple curtain torn in two. It demonstrates that we're welcomed into the presence of God. We can approach him as our Father. And in that, there is no shame. We are totally at home with God. But this is alongside the fact that we are only worthy of being God's children because of Jesus. Otherwise, we are as unworthy as the centurion to host him in our home. Any efforts we could put in couldn't match up to his perfect standard. Our position before God is one of weakness and brokenness if it is not for the cross of Jesus. And that's because both of the perfection and holiness of God, but also the brokenness of ourselves. Now, looking back at the centurion, he elaborates a little bit on his understanding of the authority that Jesus has. He recognises similarities of his own position. He commands around 100 men, hence the word centurion, men who will respect him and will do his bidding without hesitation. The brutalistic and threatening nature of the Roman army would have ensured absolute obedience, and the soldiers under him would have, had, would have followed his orders for fear of their life. So maybe thinking back to my classroom, the centurion's view of authority is not, not very relatable for, for good reasons. But this analogy points us to how the centurion understands Jesus. As Lord and God, Jesus does have authority over this world. Everything in this world will do his bidding without hesitation. When, on any number of occasions, Jesus says, be healed, then healing must take place. And I think it's striking that the centurion understands this with his Roman upbringing and his fighting career. But beyond just knowing this, just trusting its truth of its understanding, he also puts his faith into action knowing that Jesus can do what he asks. It's the type of faith that's not really about the family that he grew up in. It's not what he knows of the, of the Bible or how good he's been in the past week. This faith is only about who Jesus is. And then when it comes to Jesus asking for healing, sorry, asking Jesus for healing, the centurion puts his metaphorical money where his mouth is. I find that all too easily I can shy away from trusting God. I, I can think about what I can do to sort out the problem, but I do that rather than offering it to God in prayer. 
Now, I can give the right answers, probably, as to what to do in difficulty when I need God most. But most, more often than not, it's the putting it into practice is where I personally fall short. And that's where we can look to God for grace. He knows our hearts. He graciously sends his Spirit to help us. The centurion, well, he went for it, didn't he? He subverted expectations, societal norms, and he shocked the crowd. All because he had faith in God and what God could do. When we see ourselves rightly, that is, in need of God, and when we see God rightly, that is, powerful, compassionate and kind, how else could we respond? As we get back into the story, we see Jesus' response to the centurion. He was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. The watching crowd would have been gobsmacked at this. Their jaws would have hit the floor. The centurion had the most faith out of the crowd? Hang on, out of the town? In fact, anyone in all Israel? If we put this into the context of the Old Testament, the nation of Israel has been God's nation, the one that he protects, rescues and saves. But Israel's attitude and response to God hasn't always matched up. They've been quick to turn away, chase other trends, and um, put God in second place. Faithfulness hasn't been in Israel's strong point, but they have been God's chosen people. But here comes the shock, a centurion having the greatest faith. I wonder whether if I'd been standing in that crowd, I might have doubted Jesus. Maybe if I'd been in that situation, I could have responded the way the centurion did. And, and now as we look back on the story, we can see that you know, what the centurion did was, was the right and faithful thing to do. So, so maybe, maybe I could have done the right thing. And, and these people in the crowd may have thought as well, well, some people in Israel don't have such faith, but, but I'm not one of them. The reality is, in the words of Jesus, the centurion had such great faith. And, and we, we are broken, we are fallen. So let's learn from this situation with humility and maybe not assume as much that we do do as well in his shoes. Jesus continues, doesn't he? And I expect the initial shock that the crowd expressed would have turned to outrage and horror. When he goes on to talk about the kingdom, the teachers of the law who are watching and listening, they would have known this language of feasting, and that this was the feast of their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They would have read about it in the scriptures. They would expect to be seated at that feast when it came to it. But Jesus turns it 180 degrees around. Who will be seated at the feast? People from every corner of the globe, from east and west. And who will end up outside the party, looking in? Those we most expect to be there. Those who have been apparent subjects of the kingdom for so long. Imagine going to a wedding of a, of a close friend. Maybe there are 30 people there, 15, 6, who knows, maybe more, uh, if we dare to dream. Um, the day is in full swing. The bride and groom are having a great day and uh, they're looking very happy. As you look around though, there's a mutual friend that, that you maybe thought would be there that, that isn't, isn't, isn't there. And you look around a bit more and actually some of the bride's family, they're, they're not at this wedding. Have they forgotten? Were they invited? Did they turn down the invitation? I mean, you can't tell, but it's noticeable that they're absent. And maybe as you look further around the room, there are people that you wouldn't have expected. Maybe they're not the same friendship group or 
I didn't realise they even knew the couple. But they're not wedding crashers. Uh, they belong here, and not just as evening guests, but they're invited to the whole day, wedding feast and all. As Jesus replies centurion, he paints this picture of a kingdom to the whole crowd. Very often, when we learn about the kingdom of God, it's not like we expect. The external things that are obvious and apparent at first glance, church attendance, politeness, and being able to remember lots of theological arguments, they're not actually criteria for being in God's kingdom. They aren't inherently bad, but they have no ultimate bearing on whether you have an invite or not. You may remember the story of when Jesse's sons are lined up as Samuel comes to anoint God's king. Um, the tall ones, the strong ones, the good-looking and the clever ones, they aren't chosen by God. It's the shepherd boy, David, in the fields. Um, and in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, uh, Humans look at outward appearances, but the Lord looks into the heart. And so when we ask, what does make the difference? Can we even be sure that we belong to God's family or not? Well, yes, we can. We can be sure. Because God sees and cares about the heart. Faith in him is more valuable than any external characteristic. And the centurion in this story probably wouldn't have been shocked, maybe not as shocked as the crowd, at Jesus' answer. Instead, he might have been relieved. God welcomes in broken, sinful people because of their faith in him. He's chosen us, and we can trust him, not just in theory, but in the outworkings of it in our everyday life. The reality of it was that the Jewish leaders did not submit to Jesus, as the centurion did. The ones that we expected, the ones that we expected to have known, loved, and honoured Jesus, instead reject him. They feel threatened by him, and they plot to kill him. And the centurion, however, who represents this nation of whose authoritarian rule dominated the Jewish people, he is the one who submits to Jesus the rabbi. And why does he submit in this way? It's because he knows what he is like, and he knows what Jesus is like. When we have this right view of ourselves and of God, we cannot help to have this response to faith. As we prepare to go into the next week, let's just take a moment to reflect. Do we have a right view of Jesus? Do we see his ultimate authority in our lives today? Do we trust his ultimate authority? Because he is in control and he does have the power. And also, do we have the right view of ourselves? Do we recognise our weakness as we come before God? And do we rightly humble ourselves before the Creator? Because when those two are aligned, that is when faith springs up. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus, who came to earth with ultimate authority. We thank you that he is trustworthy, compassionate and powerful. Please teach us to put our faith in you Help us to humble ourselves and honour you. Give us opportunities this week to put this faith into action and trust you. In Jesus' name, Amen.